Welcome, guys, to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Peter Fender, and myself, Matt Slurchik. This is a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nursing topics one conversation at a time. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for following. We appreciate all your listens and follows. If you guys like this podcast and find any value in it, please give us a five star. It helps us rank better in the algorithm and it motivates us to keep on producing high quality content. How are you doing, Pete? I'm doing amazing. We have a special guest on today, guys. This episode, we would like to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Nina Ahuja, who is an ophthalmic surgeon who has earned numerous awards for excellence in surgical teaching and contributions to medical education, and is also the author of a book, Stress in Medicine. Dr. Ahuja is a founder of Docs and Leadership, an organization she created to deliver leadership education to medical students, residents, physicians, nurses, nursing students, and fellow healthcare professionals. How are you doing today, Dr. Nina? I'm doing well. Thanks very much. Nice. So how was your, how did you, first of all, get into the medical field? Medicine is something that uh, I've always had an interest in ever since I was a kid. It was all about taking care of my dolls and putting bandages all over them, hoping that they'd be okay. Mm-hmm. So that's always been uh, part of my nature. As I went through school, I realized that I was really drawn to the sciences. So that was something that seemed to come naturally to me. The idea of going into medicine was then one that brought together a lot of those interests and just personality traits. Funny enough, originally, though, I was actually looking into going into optometry, which was um, where, why I went to University of Waterloo for my undergraduate degree in Canada. That's one of the only English speaking programs available in optometry. When I went to various teaching sessions there, that's when I realized that I enjoyed it, but I wanted to do a little bit more hands on. And so medicine was uh, the next thing that made sense for me. That's how I got into that. And then um, your book, so Stress of Medicine, one interesting aspect that I noticed was the emotional intelligence side, correct? And you have an assessment to gauge stress and burnout. So I'm wondering, how do those things both correlate that you've seen in the, you know your field of work? You know, in medicine, as you know, uh, it's it's an emotional experience dealing with people when they're sick. And so that over time can become wearing on the one hand if you don't manage it appropriately or on the other hand you can become emotionally blunted so that you lose that connection with the patients that you're caring for and the families as well so emotional intelligence to me i see as being quite valuable from both the um, perspective of providing care that is warmth and uh, connecting to the people you're caring for but also for dealing with your own stresses so for example if you know the different contexts and situations that bring a rise out of you what does that look like to you and how can you create some strategies that help you deal with that in those moments so that later you can think back and reflect and say okay i improved on that because that's an aspect that i developed so the emotional awareness piece, I think, is really important so that you're able to develop responses that help you experience and, and process that emotion, but still function in a way that allows you to be productive and collegial uh, and warm in your connections with people around you in those instances. Yeah, so how were you able to like develop this emotional intelligence? Because it's not something that we just are, are born with, right? Like, how did you figure out what stresses you out in school or what stresses you out currently and how do you kind of get past it or kind of how do you figure it out? I was fortunate uh, in certain ways in that uh, my parents were very much open to talking about different stresses and experiences that I was going through. So that sort of formed a nice playing field for me in order to start thinking that way and have that idea of emotional exploration part of my up- being part of my upbringing. 
uh, as that was happening, and then I felt went through different experiences and then actually did some emotional intelligence training, I realized that there is uh, a framework out there, which I talk a little bit about the book in the book that allows you to process those jumbles of emotions that we feel in stressful moments in a way that's a little bit more organized. Part of that very much is uh, reflecting, being reflective about what that experience was, how did it make you feel, why do you think it made you feel that way, and then working your way around that to say, okay, this is how I responded, this is how I felt, is there something about me that I can work on that would help me respond differently moving forward. So that exercise of reflection, sharing thoughts with others who can offer some valuable feedback, and then looking inward to myself to see what are my traits and what can be adjusted or grown? What can I grow uh, to be more effective in my responses? Those are all things that uh, I've started to do more in an intellectual level since I've learned about these frameworks, but it was something that I was really brought up with. So you recommend probably journaling or meditating, just like you stating, or finding somebody to talk to. And, and it's interesting being a traveler, nurse, we both travel and um, getting placed into an assignment, you can tell how nur nurses are responding differently. Uh, most really, really, re uh, recently, we're having a case where nurses are feeling burnt out because they're taking care of the same patient for X amount of days. And then they create that emotional connection with them. The patient passes away suddenly and they feel that's more of a burden for them. And they prefer having a assignment switched every so often just to prevent that emotional connection from forming with the patient. I don't know if that's the best way to do things or therapeutic, but that's something that's an issue currently like in our unit. And what are some common problems that you've seen yourself like in the clinic on the OR while writing this book or while doing your research? Well, I think that there are a few different um, factors and, you know, the emotional component is always something that's there, especially in clinical care where you do establish long-term relationships like you're, you're talking about, uh, especially given the context of COVID-19 uh, for yourself and your colleagues uh, and my colleagues who are working on the front line. Uh, that is a huge challenge, which uh, I think is something that really does need to be looked at more and perhaps even reframed so that you can have that experience in a way that is uh, less emotionally impactful by maybe looking at it as an opportunity to be there for people where others, you know, their family members can't be. Uh, in my own experience, some of the challenges though at this point, uh, and they're longstanding, but they're all heightened by the COVID pandemic are a few. There are the, um, you know, the expectations and demands of providing care to patients in the numbers that require uh, that are required as well with our backlogs and the closures and the frustrations that everyone's feeling, those things have really added to that burden of overwork uh, and potentially leading to burnout as well as we're trying to catch up. Then of course, there's the administrative side as, as well with rebooking patients, uh, our staff and administrative support teams are going through a lot in terms of reorganizing and then organizing and then reorganizing and organizing as, as things change with the, the pandemic. Uh, and then with that, it's the frustration of the patients as well, which is understandable. You know, they're struggling, they need healthcare and they're not able to access it. So a lot of those things are, are certainly apparent and writing the book, it was during the first closure that we have on uh, had on elective uh, procedures and care. And so that uh, also highlighted to me the different stresses that many of the um, medical learners are going through with their curriculum being interrupted, uh, and then examinations being disrupted, uh, opportunities for applying to fellowship programs and further training being disrupted. 
So there have been a host of areas where stresses have been uh, significantly heightened by, by the circumstance that we're in right now. And, and I love that we're bringing up this subject because this is something you don't learn in nursing school or probably most you know backgrounds. Like they don't tell us how to emotionally deal with things. It's just more these tools to actually you know, cre- uh, do the task in a way for your profession. And you said one of your obsessions is to have this book be read by a lot of medical professionals like physicians and nurses. How are you exactly planning on to do that and what is like your progress? So the progress so far has been has been good. Uh, part of that is getting publicity to the book. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Uh, so I am trying to get uh, publicity in that respect. I'm also in connection with various academic leaders at the universities that I have uh, access to because of my leadership roles in academia. With that, I'm basically trying to have uh, the key decision makers read the book And if they agree that there is value in this, uh, for them to then promote it uh, as a tool and resource that's provided to students upon entry uh, into the various programs. Uh, So far, the response has been good, but of course, there are logistics as well. Right now, everyone's busy dealing with uh, other issues that are certainly more pressing with uh, curriculum-related challenges. Uh, Having said that, I also feel that this is a time, uh, if ever, that this sort of book is required because while we have those challenges on our end in terms of academics, trying to reorganize curriculum and make sure that all of the training is completed and as good as it can be, um, the students are going through this not knowing what's gonna happen. And so to have these tools to help them manage stress, I think is really valuable at this time. I also think that uh, even outside of the pandemic circumstance, it's nice for students to have insight into what the journey is like and what medicine is like whatever angle you're coming at it from and whatever health profession that you're in. So that if they have these tools to be able to use right from the outset, that becomes part of how they do things. So that wellness, their own wellness is also uh, as much of a priority as is you know, becoming skilled and becoming an expert and delivering excellent care and working with colleagues and everything else that comes along with what we do. Yeah, you've created an amazing formula because I read your book and and a form that you came with, the acronym's ADMIN, right? Can you give us a little bit of a background on how you decide to come up with, with ADMIN and what it kind of kind of means? Because in nursing school, we get a bunch of acronyms, a bunch of like knowledge regarding, you know, uh, nursing, like patient care, things like that. But like Matt said before, we, we don't get any kind of information regarding stress and how to, how to deal with it or how to cope with it or how to take it on. So I think when you came with, with ADMIN, it's it, like a little bit revolutionary almost. Well, thank you. Uh, the ADMIN framework came to me um, through COVID, as I, again, I was reflecting on the different experiences and stresses that various people are going through. And when I was thinking back to my own time, I realized that a lot of these things were originating from five different uh, life phases, so to speak, or experiences uh, that you go through, or phases that you go through in new experiences. So um, in looking at these different components, I thought, how can I put this together in a way that we in medicine can relate? And so as it was being built, and as I was formulating the framework, uh, the acronym ADMIT came to mind because I thought that is very relevant to what we do in terms of admitting patients and caring for patients, but also it all reinforces the idea that we should be very open about our challenges and admit what we're feeling so that we can deal with them and seek supports and, and get through things. The five phases of experience uh, that make up the ADMIT framework are uh, A stands for adapting to new ways. 
so that when we come across a new circumstance or a new idea, it can be challenging to be accepting of that. And so the that element is, is uh, covered in that section. D is for doing the work. So the actual day-to-day uh, -day of what we do in terms of dealing with patients, dealing with the different personalities, dealing with colleagues and just the sheer amount of work that we have to um, get through in a day. M comes to measuring success, which is how do you measure that success? Is it something that you turn inward towards and rely on in terms of knowing that you did your best? Uh, or is it something that you look towards the outside world for, which uh, with examinations and certification exams and admission you know, applications and all those things, the outward uh, markers of success are very important, but do you rest your worth on that solely or do you just use that as a component to drive your inner, inner measures as well? Mm -hmm. uh, I relates to introspection, which focuses on the idea and importance of taking the time to actually think about the experiences that you're going through, the emotions that arise and how you can grow in different ways to then go on to T, which is the final uh, phase of the, the framework uh, referred to as transformation, which is incorporating those new ideas and lessons that you learn uh, along with the influences that you've had along uh, your career and within your life to then grow into a better version of yourself each time you transform. How hard was it for you to kind of um, open up to other medical professionals or even open up uh, in, in school? Because medicine is very, is very competitive, right? So in your book, you mentioned that people don't want to really express their feelings or emotions or frustrations because they don't want to be looked at. As, as like almost inferior, you could say. So how do you get, get past that, that point? Because sometimes even, even myself, I think of a question to ask somebody, but then I, I like it's like my mind, I think about what the person is going to, going to react or how he's going to feel about me asking that question and I don't ask that question, you know? Or, culture of silence. Right. So how, how do you kind of get past that barrier? That's a great question. And that's really the um, underlying reason why we've got such a culture of silence in medicine. It, it is a very highly competitive area and there's so much at stake in everything that we do that, as you said, if you want to ask a question, there's a hesitation uh, as to what people will perceive of you if you did. In my view, there are a few things. Number one is the fact that because we're all in medicine, um, we understand the context and we understand the challenges. We understand what, at stake, what is at stake. So I think in certain ways, we don't give each other enough credit that if we do ask a question, um, that the other person will receive it openly. Now, the reality is, is that that's not an, you know, an unfair assumption because a lot of people don't receive those questions and they do judge and we know that. And we can't deny that as much as uh, we'd like to. And I think that's where uh, the second element of emotional intelligence really becomes important. And I think that that uh, exercise of becoming self-aware in terms of your own emotions, but also how you come across to others becomes really important. With that, uh, I believe that along with um, education in wellness, uh, leadership education is extremely important, which involves emotional intelligence. So that as we go through our curriculum, whether it be in nursing or you know, physician assistant or medical school or whatever that is, that we learn how we come across is going to impact how another person feels. And so having that awareness that you know, I'm, someone's asking you a question, you may think you're responding with, you know, without judgment, but your actions or your words really come across differently. Um, having that awareness is really important and learning to assess yourself 
to see, am I really being non-judgmental or not? Those are all things that become really important. So that in overcoming the barrier of being hesitant is number one, going to people that you trust. Number two, being aware of your own emotions, uh, being aware of your own self-regard and what are those measures of success? Do you draw it from the inward feeling of knowing that you did your best or are you drawing it from other people's reactions? And then having some faith that hopefully, you know, as this becomes more of a movement where we're willing to talk about our challenges, that people then uh, are more accepting of concerns that we may be uh, bringing up with one another as colleagues. I feel like that was very hard for me to understand self-awareness and how to like get to it first. I noticed that I work actually when I was taking things personally and everything was, I was reacting to everybody's, you know, emotions and feelings. And I didn't notice that it's okay. You know, they're having their own thoughts. They're having their own little, you know, um, how do I describe it? Their own stories. And it's affecting me for some reason, but those opinions are almost like irrelevant. Yeah. Um, do you want to get into eye health? Yeah. Or do you have okay. any other questions about burnout and stress? No, but if I, I could always bring them up. So how, how important is eye health? Because like from my perspective, I see my eye doctor maybe twice a year and that's that's basically it. We have a conversation. He, he asked me, you know, if I'm exercising, is, do I have a history of, of diabetes in my, in my family? And that's pretty much about it. But And I feel like we take our eyes for granted. Like no one ever really, you know, talks too much about eye health, at least in our field. So how important is eye health? And specifically, I wanted to ask, how detrimental is diabetes to, to like the optic nerve and just eye health in general? Mm -hmm. Um, eye health is, is extremely important. Uh, as you know, vision is one of the senses, uh, primary senses, and it has such a huge impact on quality of life. Uh, me as someone who wears glasses, I take them off and everything's a blur. So I am reminded of that <laughs> quite often that uh, the vision is, is extremely valuable. Yeah, we're both uh, wearing contacts right now too. So we're, we're, we're in the same boat. Yeah, yeah. I'm wearing contacts or glasses. So yeah. I can relate to that. <laughs> uh, in terms of frequency, Assessment, it really does depend on your age uh, and what your eye health is and what your systemic health is as well. So that for people up until you're about in your mid 40s to 50s, even if you're checked every few years, it's, it's actually fine because the incidence of uh, eye conditions that uh, come up, uh, except for, you know, the, the random injury or whatever, it's the incidence is not that high. Having said that, when you do hit um, your mid 40s or 50s and certainly into your 60s and into your senior years, it is important to be seen more frequently, um, at least once a year, depending on whether or not you have other conditions. It's in those age ranges that a lot of conditions like macular degeneration, glaucoma, cataracts, they start to present. With respect to diabetes, if you are a diabetic, however, um, that changes everything. So no matter what your age is as a diabetic, you do need to have at least annual assessments. And then depending on if you are showing signs of diabetic changes in the eye, the uh, frequency may be even more frequent. Diabetes can have an impact on sight in many different ways. Um, most commonly, the concern gets to be the fluctuations of blood sugars from very high ranges to low ranges, but or, or being sustainably high. That can cause damage to the blood vessels in the retina, which is the inner lining of the eye, as you know. And that then in turn can lead to uh, bleeding, uh, various hemorrhages, different types of swelling. There's a whole continuum of, um, uh, of progression in that uh, condition, which we call diabetic retinopathy. So that the more control you have, the less likely you are to develop those problems. And diabetes is one of the um, leading causes of blindness in people who have comorbid issues and specifically diabetes. And so when you do have that condition, it's, it's extremely important to get things checked. 
With respect to the optic nerve, the, the conditions or the symptoms or signs that I was just talking about, the signs specifically, are more related to intraretinal, but certainly we do know that uh, diabetes can affect blood circulation uh, to all areas and the eyes having very small nerves and therefore very small vasculature, the optic nerve can be impacted, but more, more routinely you're looking at retinal changes and uh, hemorrhages associated with that. Cataracts also can happen actually as well. So all, okay. lots of reasons to be checked frequently if you're a diabetic. Yeah. And then also not to mention we're in this digital age where technology is so prevalent and blue light is a topic that gets brought up you know, quite frequently. I've heard about it, but I'm not too sure how evidence-based is it. Um, have you ever experienced any re research or done any research in blue light and how does it specifically affect eye health? The blue, blue light is uh, an interesting idea where there is some research being done and there is suggestion that the blue light can actually affect the health of the uh, receptors in the eye that help you um, see. And so as a result of that, it's the idea is that if you're able to filter that out, that it will be protective for you. So for example, uh, children who use LED lights at home, the blue light frequencies, uh, we have uh, our, one of our girls uses that. We say, try to avoid the blue light. Uh, simply because there's a suggestion that it could impact the retina. Um, in cataract surgery, there are certain types of intraocular lenses that have blue blocker features to them. The idea there, again, is that it can help protect the macula, which is responsible for your very sharp vision, uh, and in that protection can potentially help progression of macular degeneration. The evidence on that, uh, there is suggestion that that certainly is something that is useful, uh, still on the fence in certain ways, but the idea and from my perspective is that, you know, if there is a potential for having uh, some protection, uh, protection, why not just at least be mindful of it and certainly don't expose yourself intentionally, uh, as opposed to the incidental exposures that we sometimes can't even avoid. So I'm going to understand that you work both in the clinic and in the, in the OR, correct? Yes, that's correct. So in the OR, do you mostly deal with like trauma to the eye? Is that what usually consists of? Or do you guys do like LASIK procedures, things like that? My practice is geared primarily towards cataract surgery. I do some minor eyelid procedures as well. And then on call, uh, certainly dealing with traumatic injuries uh, also. That's with adults LASIK, and kids? LASIK is, uh, LASIK is a procedure I didn't get into myself. It's... Mm. Uh, that's more of a personal choice. I choose to focus more on the, the medical issues, just given the demand and the nature of my practice and how it's evolved. And then do you get a choice between like uh, pediatrics and like adult, do you just primarily work with, with adults? I primarily work with adults um, and my population tends to be actually seniors, so. Okay, interesting. One last question about eye health here. So uh, virtual reality, how is that going to affect potentially eye health in the future? It maybe it could be like the next eye pandemic in the next, you know, five to 10 years. What are your thoughts on that? Or even like Google glasses, like, like screen-based glasses where you always look at some kind of a image on your glasses. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, uh, that's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> um, in terms of um, virtual eye care, it's, it's come a long way. And just like with everything else, the pandemic has really uh, forced us to change in many ways. Telehealth is something that has been uh, ongoing for quite some time. Uh, assessment of remote uh, patients who are located in remote communities, for example, for things like diabetic retinopathy, as we were talking about before, it's, it's possible because of the imaging uh, capabilities that we have. Right now, what's being looked at is, you know, some of the more um, 
anterior segment conditions. Uh, so for example, people who come in with iritis or swelling uh, in the eye associated with uh, inflammation due to say someone's got rheumatoid arthritis and they're presenting with that, or they've got ankylosing spondylitis and they're, they're coming in with that. Right now, one of the challenges that was really identified through the pandemic is that we identify the, the presence and the degree of those types of inflammation using our slit lamp microscopes, which require close vicinity with, with patients. Uh, in um, the live environment, we've now got plexiglass shields that we can put onto slit lamps. But in the case where you know we're dealing with, say, a senior who's located in a long-term care facility, well, how do you how do you do that if there's a breakout and you can't bring them to your clinic and just with all the restrictions and limitations and mobility issues and all of those things, how do you manage that? So that they are developing uh, apps to be able to um, do virtual assessments of the anterior of, of the anterior segment, which is where those cells and that, that inflammation is located. So I think moving forward, there's gonna be a lot of movement, a lot of development in how we assess patients virtually. Uh, it's gonna change how we do things just like everything else is changing, but it's a very, very interesting. Okay. I know Matt brought up virtual reality. So one of our questions was, now that we're kind of just kind of uh, brainstorming these questions is, how do you think, or maybe if you know, even if you know, have you ever worn like a virtual reality headset or have you even tried virtual reality before? I have, but unfortunately mm. it makes me feel nauseous. Really? So it's, quickly super, took it off. it's super stimulating. Because <laughs> my question is, is how, how does that affect eye health? Is there any studies done on that? Do you know anything about that? Because, you know, you, you put on this like helmet and you're basically seeing artificial, you know, figures and you're doing artificial things. So how does that going to affect eye health? Do you have any kind of idea? Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't come across any studies uh, that come to top of mind anyway about that. Uh, intuitively, though, or thinking about it, I don't see any impact uh, unless, of course, it's that whole idea that there's, you know, say the blue light is very prominent and that's sort of in your field and it's a contained space and everything else. Um, but I don't, I'm not aware, to be honest with you, of any, any evidence that's come out that uh, makes that a concern. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was curious because like once you put the headset on, it's like you, you see, you, you see all this real looking figures, but you actually, you're not looking at anything real, real, right? So I'm not sure if our eyes are going to be adapt from looking at reality to artificial reality. So I guess we'll kind of see when that, when time moves on, right? So I'm actually curious about docs and leadership and um, your organization. Are you taking um, all this knowledge you have from the book and all your research and are you trying to imply it into the medical field? What positive changes are you trying to bring about from docs of leadership and in the medical field in general? Mm -hmm. Docs and leadership is an organization that I developed as a result of um, different experiences that I had in different leadership positions at both the hospital and the university. With that, I saw, uh, worked with many, many leaders, some who were excellent, some who needed some development and particularly in the physician leadership area. And the reason for that, as you know, is that we just don't get any formalized leadership education uh, in, in medical school and any health science program actually that I'm aware of. I think in nursing as well, we don't really have formalized education. So the idea uh, for that is to try to bring this into curriculum uh, in some capacity. So for example, at our university, we're now running sessions for residents uh, and we're also going to be looking at doing it for program directors to help bring these concepts to them so that they are more effective and efficient in, in leading, but also in how they interact with students um, and patients uh, as they move forward. 
The research uh, and work that I did for the book, I am also incorporating into the curriculum to help promote and, and um, provide people with tools to look at their own wellness. So the overall concept is, is a few things. Number one is that I think with leadership development, it improves how we're able to interact uh, in our practices and in our organizations and contribute in ways that can impact at an organizational level or system level. Uh, and also, uh, it allows us to interact with others who do have business training uh, with some idea of what they're talking about. Because right now, um, it seems that many of us, you learn, but you learn on the job as opposed to having uh, come in with that knowledge. The second thing then is also to help develop that emotional intelligence element. Uh, so along with your leadership skills, uh, you've got that emotional awareness component, which then helps you interact with others so that uh, for example, one of the barriers that some colleagues expressed to me when I was taking various courses is that they don't like working with uh, physicians always because, you know, we're used to getting things the way that we want, we know how we want it done, and we're not always willing to listen to other people's opinions, or at least that's the impression that's being given. And so with that uh, understanding of the leadership principles together with emotional intelligence, hopefully the competency as well as the uh, emotional awareness will encourage people to want to work with us. And then there's, of course, the emphasis on wellness so that we then turn inward and make sure that we're looking after ourselves as we're looking after other people. And all of that in combination, I feel, can have an impact on a system level where if we are interested in engaging with health policymakers and making decisions about how the healthcare system is run, we can pull all of those insights to them and we can present them to them so that when they're making decisions, it's not just an intellectual exercise for them. They actually have some interest uh, and exposure and insight into what, how, what it's like for us on the front line and how those decisions can impact us. So those are, those are the goals of Docs and Leadership is to build a capacity for leadership by health professionals, to increase emotional intelligence, to foster engagement and to promote our own wellness. I love that because in our educational system, I feel like we just adopted the look-say method and we read a textbook, we regurgitate it on a test, but there's no actual real application of, of leadership. And what are like some common factors have you noticed in poor leadership that have you noticed in the work setting? Because for example, during a time of COVID right now, I think leadership is important more than ever. If you work on a unit, you can tell if there's a different charge nurse on a unit and how different the unit's going to operate. If you have somebody that's, uh, for example, stressed out and gets anxious very quick, you can tell how the nurses react differently to that leader. And I feel like that's one of the things that are not talked about enough. Even from, from a management standpoint, if they don't address us properly or, you know, they acknowledge our emotions or how stressful things are, it could lead to a bad relationship between staff and management. And that's where, like, there's a lot of tension. We know it is in the medical field, specifically in nursing. Mm-hmm. I think there are a few elements. Uh, number one is there has to be an environment, in my opinion, there has to be an environment that is open and willing to accept the ideas of other people. We have ideas as leaders as, you know, this is how things should be done and this is what our expectation is, but we don't always know all the pieces of the puzzle so that we can know it from the you know, the high level view of this is the impact financially and this is the flow and this is the structure that we would like to see. But you really do need the input from the front line to say, okay, this is what we're thinking. Um, we'd like your input on, you know, these, these two or three things. It's of course impossible to make broad decisions with so many hands in the kitchen, so to speak, mm -hmm. but to have that input on certain key elements that are going to be impactful and that other people may have 
um, further insight on that you may not because you're not on the front line in that particular capacity. I think that there's value in that. I think the other thing too is that there needs to be patience, uh, flexibility, and a positive outlook as well. Um, we know that there are always going to be challenges. And so if your um, mindset or approach as, as a leader is one that is always looking for what's wrong, uh, that's going to create an environment that is not going to be productive and not going to be uh, as um, uh, an enjoyable workplace as it could otherwise be. The reality is, is that things and situations change where there are always new factors and circumstances that come into play. How you approach that makes a difference and it sets the tone for the team as well as to whether you're going to be motivating for them or you're going to be demotivating for them. So number one, then again, is, is being willing to engage other people. Number two is being uh, able to maintain a positive uh, outlook and approach. And number three also is to create an environment of warmth and support where people feel that you know, if, if I disagree with something or if I'm, you know, agreeing with it, but I feel uncomfortable about it, that those people on your team can turn to you and be very authentic and honest about it without that fear of judgment that we were talking about before. I think it's very common and very fair to say that everybody wants a positive outcome. We all want to deliver better care. We all want to deliver more efficient care. So it's not that the ultimate goal is different. It's just the steps on how you get there need to be um, presented and provided in a way that people feel like they have something to give and that they feel empowered and that they feel that their contribution is important. And if there's agreement or disagreement that those opinions matter, whether or not decisions are changed or not, if there's a feeling that my you know, opinions will be authentically considered in a genuine way, then it becomes easier to accept things that may not necessarily be the way you want them to be. It just allows you that opportunity to at least feel heard. And then you can somehow find a reason to um, accept the change as it is because you feel like you've been a part of it, at least in some way. I think that's a huge challenge for us as nurses. We, we have to learn or we feel like we're not heard. I'll speak for the nursing culture a little bit. So, and that's how I feel, especially with the management and you know, uh, COVID, I think this is the hardest time I ever worked in my life. I haven't worked this hard before. Like, I'm always tired when I get out of shift. I, I go to sleep exhausted. But I don't think it's always like a, a leadership issue. I feel like a lot of nurses don't want to uh, open up the room for conversation. Like, they have these thoughts in their heads on what they want to change, how things should be better. But no, nobody, nobody ever even brings it up. So if nobody brings it up, how are you supposed to address it? So, like, from a, from like a leadership standpoint, how do you, like, encourage people to, to speak out and to... Um, express their, their problems or, or concerns? Mm -hmm. I think there are a few things to that. I think one is to develop that culture of openness. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk about that in the book. I think that, you know, the idea of competitive nature, that's true amongst physicians. Uh, in nurses, there's collegiality there, but there's still that hesitation and fear of judgment, perhaps. But I think the other thing too, and this has been my experience in different leadership roles, and I've got many friends uh, who are uh, close friends who are nurses actually, is that if you bring up an opinion, it doesn't necessarily feel like anybody cares to hear it, which I think is wrong. It should not be that way. Um, and it's, you know, hopefully you feel differently and you've had different experiences, but it's almost as though um, the nursing voice gets lost somehow. So I think that it's really important for leaders uh, and physicians to uh, champion and sponsor nurses uh, 
uh, to be able to have their voices heard and to really understand what is that perspective that your nurse colleague is presenting and you know what can you do to help support that. The reality is we're all a team and we all, you know, we're as good as our, our you know, our least feeling supported parts, if that makes sense. And so if, it, if it's our nursing uh, colleagues who are feeling that they're not being supported, how can we uplift that voice and, you know, draw in our own experience and create a whole situation where we can move forward together to leadership and say, look, this is our opinion. On the other thing, uh, the other hand, or the flip side too, is leadership has to be open to that. So it's really about the culture of the organization and where the organization doesn't support that culture. That's where, you know, my hope is that with leadership training and education being incorporated into curriculum, you develop those skills and you lose the fear to approach leadership because it's, it's just got to happen to make things work smoothly, I think, uh, especially because, you know, we're all on the front line. We're key elements to healthcare. If you don't have us, there's no one providing care. Yes. And we understand, so a lot of our listeners are mostly nurses, nursing students, or just people that are just enjoying your content. So we, we paint the picture for nursing very well and what stresses nurses out. Can you provide some perspective on the stresses that physicians are experiencing during these times? Because that's something that we don't hear because of that silent culture. We don't know what the physician is thinking, how they're feeling, what they're going through. Mm -hmm. From a physician perspective, uh, you know, we face a lot of similar stresses in terms of workload, um, dealing with patients, dealing with different personalities, meeting, trying to meet expectations. Uh, in addition to that, there's the, there's the load of making decisions that are going to be impacting patients and hoping that they're the right ones. Um, now, of course, you, you take, uh, you know, you take your confidence and from your experiences and also the education that you have, but there, depending on, you know, the scenario at the time, particularly when you're dealing with complex uh, conditions, whether it's sight threatening in my case or life threatening in other cases, there's that feeling that you carry with you that the decisions that you make will have a significant impact on that patient you're dealing uh, with and caring for and also their families. So that, that becomes uh, very difficult um, to let go of if, if you know, your, your mindset is one that you actually care, which I, I think it's fair to say that all physicians do. In addition to that, uh, that's the patient care aspect. In addition to that, you've also got the administrative elements of it. So for those of us who run private practices, uh, you're managing a team, you're hiring and firing, you're doing uh, human resource activities that again, you don't get any training for when you're going through medical education. You're dealing with the finances of running a business. Uh, in COVID right now, you're dealing with, you know, potentially laying off staff and what do you, how do you change your practice in a way that's maintaining their safety as well as your own, but with the reality that it's not just about wanting to maintain safety, you're legally obligated to do so. So there are those other factors that come into the day-to-day -day, uh, practice management, uh, particularly if you're in a private practice, uh, but also if you're if you're managing a practice in a hospital, though there are different supports there. But those are the added elements that that really increase um, the burden. And then with all of that, a lot of the time you're working from home, and so that it's time away from family, and you're trying to balance that because you want to spend quality time with your family and children and extended family and spouse and you know every everything that way. And you want some time for yourself as well. So there are lots of um, elements relating to patient care. Uh, the general practice of medicine from a from a business standpoint 
uh, and I don't mean business in terms of making profit, I'm talking business of running a practice and making sure you have all the elements you need to provide the care you can. And then for those of us who teach, there's also the uh, expectation and responsibility of working with our learners so that especially in COVID where there are restrictions, making sure that the students get proper exposure to the different elements that they need to have exposure to so that they develop the confidence and competence uh, that they need uh, in order to be able to graduate and uh, feel good about their skill set and abilities moving forward. So there are lots of different elements that come into play from a physician perspective. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people in general struggle with like time management and organization. Uh, how can you, is there any tips you can offer to people that maybe are starting their own practice and are kind of struggling with time management and organization? So how do you like you organize your days or or, or, or weeks because you are, are a very productive person? Yeah, time management is, thank you. Uh, time management is um, a challenge. I do have some strategies that I, I have learned over the years. Uh, number one, I often take time, usually once a week, to reflect on all the different activities that I'm involved with and what the schedule is looking like moving forward. Uh, it's The schedule is I'm, I've maintained a sense of flexibility in my own mind where I realize that I may need to shift things around as new um, uh, commitments arise. Uh, secondly, it's uh, so one is to reflect. Secondly, is to uh, prioritize what needs to be done, uh, what is a must do versus what would be a nice to do, and then prioritizing those things into the schedule for that week. Mm -hmm. Then it's about delegating. So if there are certain things that uh, someone else can do on my behalf, uh, I you know look towards my team members to uh, offer some support that way and offer them some guidance as to what needs to be done. And then I keep an open mind and basically say, this is the goal, get there how you think it, it's gonna work. These are the principles I wanna follow. And, and then you know they're able to take it on. The key thing though, is being organized about it. Uh, it's very easy when you've got so many things going on to be disorganized and to uh, become overwhelmed with the number of tasks that need to be done. So for myself, I, I'm big on to-do lists. Uh, I also like to put little uh, notes in my calendar. I do have a digital calendar, but I also keep uh, a paper agenda planner for me. If I write it out somehow, it just helps me uh, feel more focused and organized uh, with that so that um, those things become important. So reflecting, prioritizing, delegating, keeping organized and being flexible. Seems like you could write a book on that too. You heard that, Pete, organization, number yeah. one. How, how do you personally like de-stress from medicine and from your life? What are your like your go-tos? Uh, I there are a few things I like to do. I do enjoy going for walks. Um, I enjoy spending time with my my husband and my my family. Uh, but for me personally as an individual, I love taking bubble baths. That's a huge thing for me. I find once I'm in the bath, it's like everything goes away. Uh, I also like to just sometimes sit uh, in a quiet spot and listen to the silence. It sounds kind of funny, but even if there is a room full of sound, if you try to just listen to everything beneath that, there's a silence there. And that helps me um, become quite centered, even in a moment of chaos. Um, it's, it's taken me practice to develop that. It's Some refer to that as a form of meditation. I actually read it in a meditation book as a method. And so that, that works for me as well. And then just uh, sometimes actively meditating as well, where you're sort of doing a whole body scan and you know the traditional ways that you read about it. Uh, those things I enjoy doing. I also enjoy sketching. I don't have to have time to do that, but uh, sketching and writing are definitely 
uh, two hobbies that um, I enjoy spending time on and would like to do more of uh, when I have a chance. Yeah, like sitting in silence and meditation, like that's once you kind of figure it out and you kind of establish a routine, that's like almost groundbreaking stuff. Especially for like nurses, all we do is hear alarms all day. You go on your phone, social media, you got so much inputs coming in. You know, you got so much opinions coming in. You start to kind of almost lose yourself. And then once you get into that room of silence or like um, you're mentally quieting everybody in your in your head, then you kind of truly experience yourself. Then you can finally almost have like a discussion in your mind. You can almost share your, your actual opinions about things because like walking around in the world, you know, nobody really cares about your opinion. They just want to get their opinion out, right? So you kind of almost start to lose touch with yourself. You start believing other people's opinions because like we've learned if, if we hear one thing over and over again, we tend to adapt to it, right? So that room of silence and just silencing the mind is, is very beneficial to like find like exploring yourself and getting to know yourself in a whole different level. I agree with you. It's been an amazing time on this interview, Nina. Do you have any takeaways or anything you want to end with or something that maybe our listeners should know about or a, a gem for the show for the end here? I think, um, first of all, thank you again very much for having me as a guest. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and to your audience as well. I think the biggest thing is, is that in this particular time, especially, um, there will be many challenges and there will be many problems. Uh, but within each of those problems, one thing that um, my dad always said is that within every problem, there is a solution. You just have to be patient and willing to look for it. So that's something that I have found very, very helpful in a lot of the different things that have come up uh, in this time and in general. So I would say that for me, that's something I carry with me and hopefully that may be helpful to yourselves and your audience as well. Dr. Hujo, where can people find you if they want to look you up? Uh, if they want to look me up, there's the, my website. It's www.docsinleadership.org. I'm also on social media. Uh, the handle is Docs Leadership. And the book is available, if people are interested in purchasing it, that's available on amazon.com. Uh, Actually, Amazon, it's anywhere, really. So. And, and I love that gem because it's a form of stoicism, by the way. And I really love the philosophy of stoicism. And pe people, if they want to directly buy the book, we'll provide a link underneath the um, episode details. They could just directly click on that link. Oh, okay, thank you. Thank you so much for the interview. It was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. See you guys next Friday.